And we all need each other. We need each other's input in our lives, and we need to stand together. How's the mic doing? Is that working out all right? People hear me? Okay, good. So, let's click. That was a big click. What is a standard? A simple definition, which I'll probably just use as a simple definition for now, is a church standard is an effort to apply Scripture at the brotherhood level. It's, it's Scripture, it's application, it's brotherhood combined. Each, each, every one of us is obligated to uh, live out God's teaching, God's commands as best we can in our own lives. As individuals, we need to be not just hear, hearers of the word, as James says, but doers also. And that means making specific applications to what we do and what we don't do. And that happens at the individual level. A church standard is, is that kind of approach also applied at the uh, brotherhood level. And they're often fairly specific. We will do this, we won't do that. So my kind of quick working definition of a church standard is it's an effort to apply scripture at the brotherhood level. And I want you to notice uh, scripture, application, and brotherhood, those are three components that every church must have if it's going to be a real church. Uh, you don't want to take out any one of those three. You don't want application and brotherhood, but no scripture, obviously. You don't want scripture and brotherhood, but no application either. And neither do you want application and scripture, but no brotherhood. All right, a history of church standards in four minutes. I had to think, it took Ken Rank about uh, five services, four, four services, to cover about five years of church of uh, Civil War history, and I'll briefly cover 1,500 years in four minutes here. This comes straight out of a book written by David Berceau. I'm just pretty much quoting him here. I didn't do the research, but I trust his research on this. He says that church standards have been around since the early days of the church, Early Christian congregations often used manuals of church life. He mentions the Didache, the Apostolic Tradition of Hippolytus, the Didascalia, and the Apostolic Constitutions. And Berceau says that church standards mainly fell out of use around maybe 400 AD and were not used for quite a while after that. In the Middle Ages, though, most of the church groups that broke away from the Catholic Church, such as the Lollards and the Waldensians and the Czech Brethren, all had strong church standards. And Berceau says, in fact, uh, during the Middle Ages, the authorities often suspected as heretics those who were living exceptionally godly lives. So if you were living a really godly life, they might think you were a heretic, which I thought was kind of funny, but I'm sure they didn't. I think it was funny. After the Reformation, um, some of the church groups that had standards, of course, the Anabaptists did, Schleichheim Confession, uh, the Moravian did, and Calvinist churches also had standards. 
And later on, John Wesley's Methodist Society had standards or a, or a uh, rule of conduct. And he believed they were an important part of what he was trying to accomplish. Uh, the part of the history that, that interests me the most is what happened the closest to the time of um, time of Christ or the time of, uh, during which the New Testament was written. What did the church do back when it was the closest to the time the New Testament was written, when maybe some of the apostles were still alive? Did they have any standards? And outside of the Bible, probably the best record that we have is this church manual called the Didache, which is written back in sometime late in the first century. And it talks about a number of different topics, kind of interesting to read. Um, and there are a few spots in that manual, a few rules are listed in that manual that to me look kind of like a church standard. For example, this one. Let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but do you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays? I hope you haven't been fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. Nobody in here doing that. Uh, I, I don't know what, what exactly was going on in their setting that they felt like this is an important, important enough issue to make a rule about. Um, maybe there was, maybe somehow fasting on Mondays and Thursdays identified them with a group of people they didn't want to be connected to. Um, but for whatever reason, they, they felt like this was an inappropriate enough, enough of a problem, enough of a... Um, yeah, it, 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 it didn't work with what they were trying to accomplish. And so they made a rule about it. So the, the very earliest church manual that we have has a few spots in it that look like church standards, at least to me. That's kind of the point I would make. Now, history isn't scripture. It's not scripture, but it's kind of interesting and we can learn from it. Uh, John Koblenz wrote a little book called Our Written Standards for the Church, and I, I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm not going to be able to cover every aspect of this issue tonight in one evening, um, but that book would be one I would recommend you to read, Our Written Standards for the Church. Uh, and while I'm at it, um, David Brousseau has some interesting things to say about church standards. Uh, Val Yoder in uh, I Will Build My Church has a section in there where he discusses it a little bit. Those are, those are some places you could go looking for some more input in case you're interested. Anyway, back to John Koblenz. I got sidetracked. And his book, Our Written Standards for the Church, he says, uh, there are two ditches. There is the ditch of no regulations. He feels that that is a ditch you can fall into. But there's also the ditch of over-regulation. And so I think it's only fair, since I'll be talking about the benefits of standards, that um, I also look at the fact that there are some limitations to what church standards can do also. They can't change your heart. They do not define what is sin or is not sin. If something is sin, it's because the Scripture says it's sin. They do not enforce a spiritual life or love for God. 
They don't replace the need for accountability or deep relationships. In fact, as I was doing this study, it stood out to me that um, this, this whole concept of church standards does not work if, if the brotherhood is not involved in it and if they're not bought in to church standards. So the role of brotherhood is, is very important whether you have standards or not. They're limited in what they can do and they can be misused. I'm somehow double-clicking when I mean to do one click. I'm not sure why. Two foundational truths here. Before we discuss the benefit of standards, there's two things that I think we ought to lay down to start with. Um, and I think, I think everyone will agree with these. The first one is that we affect each other. We affect each other in a good way, hopefully, most of the time. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we can also affect each other in a bad way. Uh, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he's not talking about good leaven. So that's one foundational truth. We affect each other. The second one is that we vary in a number of different ways. For example, we vary in our gifts. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 talk about all the different gifts that we have. And um, the gifts that we have affect how we look at things. They affect our perspective, how we approach problems and what we consider to be a problem. They affect how we look at issues. And that's, that's good. That's part of, of us having a gift in, in a specific area. It's a good thing, so long as we're, we are willing to listen to each other. So we vary in gifts. We also vary in maturity. First John 2 talks about little children, young men, fathers. I think in that passage he's describing different levels of spiritual maturity. In Hebrews 5, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. A person who is not ready for solid spiritual food is not going to be, um, is not going to be able to interpret and apply Scripture as accurately as someone who is more mature. Just a Fairly simple reality there. Uh, we also vary in sanctification. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3 says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So someone who is involved in sin, is struggling with sin in their lives, is, is not going to be able to see issues as clearly as someone who is walking more closely to God. And why am I emphasizing these three variations? Because they affect how we interpret and apply Scripture. They affect how accurately we read Scripture and how clearly we apply it to our lives. Now, in an ideal church, 
we'd all be very mature Christians. And if you had a church made up of um, the Apostle John and Paul, the Apostle Paul, and Dan Freed, you wouldn't need any standards. Picking on Dan Freed here a little bit. But if you would add me to the mix, um, you would have a problem. And Paul would probably soon say something like, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And we need a church discipline. We vary in gifts and in maturity and in sanctification. And I say that all to say that, that we need each other's perspective when it comes to understanding and living out Scripture. And, and the truth is, we, we all stumble at times. Uh, it's not like there really is an elite handful of people here that, that um, or anywhere that doesn't need anyone else. So those are the kind of two foundational truths. I, I, I think we probably all agree with this, that, that we affect each other and we're a mixture of strengths and weaknesses. So with those two points in mind, uh, I want to talk about what I see to be the benefits of church standards. The first one has to do with uh, how we look out for each other, that standards can help us look out for each other. We talked about those who are spiritually mature, those who aren't quite there yet. Um, those who are spiritually mature need to live in a way that respects those who are not as experienced or not as mature. And there are some issues in which one person's liberty is, is really another person's stumbling block. And we don't want to be stumbling blocks. We don't want to stumble ourselves, and we don't want to be stumbling blocks to anyone else. Let's just look at a little scripture here. Uh, Mark 9, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble... I'm sorry, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What are the, what, how do standards help us in this area of fulfilling our obligation to each other? How do standards help us care for each other? Here's one scenario. Um, the Brotherhood, let's say the Brotherhood is working together and we decide, you know, here is an issue that commonly trips people up. It's, it's a danger zone. Maybe it's because of the environment we're in. Maybe it's because of the culture we're in. Alcohol would actually be a pretty good example. John MacArthur points out that alcohol has been heavily commercialized. We see ads for it everywhere, blasting in our face. It's probably more intoxicating than it was back in Jesus' days because of distillation process and so on. 
and the results of drunkenness today are probably more serious than back in the time of the New Testament because we spend so much time in these 3,000-pound missiles we call cars. Drunkenness is a serious thing today. Uh, it was serious back then, too. I'm not trying to downplay it, but drunk driving is, is such a prevalent problem. Now, if the Brotherhood decides that, that this issue of, of alcohol and, and the risks of alcohol are serious enough that we need to take a common stand, then the outcome is the Brotherhood decides we're going to all steer clear of this, of this risky area. We're not going to drink any alcohol. Now, that commitment isn't going to keep anyone from sinning if they intend to. But a standard can be a clear danger sign that um, there's something to, there is a danger here that, and it can be a sign for those who, who maybe aren't quite as, as aware of the risks. Maybe they haven't thought it all through. Maybe they just haven't had the experience of, of those who are older. Maybe they're not as matured as they, ought, as they ought to be. But a standard can be a danger sign. Uh, for example, here's a danger sign. Now, you could argue that this is a, an, an unnecessary danger sign. People already know that, for example, falling in a mine shaft is a bad idea. Uh, you shouldn't want to fall in a mine shaft. Um, and they should know better than walking backwards while using a camcorder. I would agree with all those points. But this is still an important warning sign. It's an important danger sign because it reminds you, be on your guard, or maybe more accurately, it, it tells you, don't go beyond this point. It, it's just too dangerous. It's not worth walking around over there, especially if you're walking backwards. So standards... Uh, can be can play a role as a as a danger sign. They can also serve as a guardrail. This is an analogy that Sam has used in the past. Um, a guardrail is is restrictive. It's going to cause you some friction if you drive right up against it. But the point of it is to protect you from what's on the other side, from disaster. And yes, you can probably plow through it if you intend to, but you will meet some resistance on the way. I'm just going to put a plug in here for about, about children and church standards. This is kind of a sidebar, but it still falls under the cover of, of looking out for each other because we look out for each other's children right now, and, and I appreciate that. I definitely need help in that area. Uh, there's something to be said about how our children interact because youngsters influence each other in a way that, I would even go so far as, as to say, in a way that parents don't influence their children. I think there is a, I think peer pressure can sometimes pull on children in a way that parents maybe are not able to pressure their children. That I'm not a child psychologist, but... I'll throw that out there. And maybe I wouldn't have to worry about this if I was a perfect dad, which is why I'm worried. Um, but standards can help set some expectations as to the kind of influence our kids have on each other and the kind of activities they get involved in when they 
hang out together. They set, some, they set a few boundaries as to how we're going to impact each other, not just as brothers and sisters, but also when our families get together. So that's, that's what I would argue is the first benefit of church standards is they, they help us, they play a role in us looking out for each other. And um, and I'll leave it at that. What about unity? I believe standards can contribute to unity. Now I recognize that standards can also contribute to controversy. They They can sometimes be a sore subject. Let's look at the scripture on this one. I had about five five passages I I would love to read here, but I'll read just this one. Uh, In this context, Paul's writing to a church that has some major division in it. I'm I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and so on. But Paul is saying more than just, I wish you guys would get along and stop arguing. He's, he's calling them to a, a, a high level of unity. And uh, by the way, 1 Corinthians reminds us that just because you believe in Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you are uh, united or as united as you ought to be. Let me read this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's calling them to a high level of unity. Um, That word agree in there, some manuscripts use the Greek word that means speak the same thing. United, the word united means fit together, made perfect. The King James Version says perfectly joined together. Perfectly joined together. And what's being united here is is our mind and our judgment. We should be perfectly joined together in mind and judgment. And if we really share our minds and our judgment, it makes sense to me that in some areas we will also share how Scripture ought to apply with what we're facing. So here's a question. Is a group of believers that has decided on certain applications, are they more united than one that has not, all other things being equal? And I believe the answer is yes. Because they have, they have listened to each other carefully. They have worked together to sort through an issue. There's probably been some give and take. There's been some yielding. There's a willingness to make sacrifices for the body. There is, you know, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. We saw that already. And finally, there's a concrete commitment. This is how I'm going to support my body, my local body, in a very specific way. And the end result is that there is, there is a closer unity than if everyone is headed in their own direction. We may not be on the same line on every page, but we're at least on the same page. And I believe that, that gives us some, some definition, some stability, and, and a cohesion. Now, as a sidebar, some of you are probably thinking, well, that process you described sounds great, but it's been a while since that's happened here at Bethel. Well, we actually got started on it back in, uh, back in the summer. 
But I think I'm speaking for the ministry team here when we say that we recognize that, yes, it hasn't happened for a while here in our church. And that, yes, there probably is a bit of an ownership problem as far as it comes to our church discipline. Ownership as in being bought in, not ownership as in I own the church. And, and how do we improve this? Uh, you know, a standards review might be part of the answer, but um, I think this is something that we, we ought to have more discussion about. Deserves some more attention, in my opinion. Now, sometimes the road towards unity, well, usually, has some disagreements on the way. Um, you should hear me and my coworkers working uh, out a problem at work sometimes. You would think we'd never get along. But... Um, so sometimes arriving at a decision does involve some, some disagreements and working through things, and we could try to fix that by getting rid of everything that causes disagreement. But just because you're in a place where no one disagrees doesn't mean that you have unity. For example, um, these folks here in this graveyard don't disagree much these days, but we wouldn't say that uh, they're necessarily united either. I'm not suggesting that a church without standards is a graveyard. That would be going a little extreme, wouldn't it? Now, just to be clear, I feel like I, I should put this in just for balance, that the most important part of unity is our commitment to Christ. We don't want to get so... Uh, focused on standards as, as a source of unity that we ignore the foundation. Um, if the body is, is not made up of, of loving believers, you know, that, that, love, that love Jesus and love each other, it's, it's just not going to be a body no matter how many standards you slap onto it. Third benefit of church standards is that they help us stand against the world. A New, Testament, a New Testament church must not be worldly. If a church is being affected by the world, it's really infected. The principle of separation is clearly spoken of throughout Scripture. And uh, I'll read just this one from James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How do standards help? How, um, there's a strength in a common stance against some threats. You're not as strong by yourself. We affect each other. And we influence each other. It's the reality of a family life. Back during the American Revolution, this fellow, Benjamin Franklin, supposedly said this, we must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. And there's some truth in that when it comes to the body of Christ, that we do need to help each other resist the attacks of Satan Otherwise, there's a much greater chance that we will fall. People who have left Anabaptist churches saying that they are still going to live like an Anabaptist, it doesn't usually work. 
Um, what I'm going to say next is, is okay, so honestly, I, I, I sweated over this thing, and I tried to figure out how is a way for me to say this in, a, in the most gentle and non-divisive way, and, and I don't know that if I've, I've come up with one or not. Um, but I am not trying to be negative or divisive here. But I'll just say that I'm trying to make a case for, for our, why our church should have standards. There is some history that we need to observe when we're talking about resisting the pool of the world. There's a pattern that we as a ministry have seen that many of you who are older and wiser than I am have seen that churches that lay aside standards entirely do tend to become more tolerant of the world over time. And it may not happen 100% of the time, and I know this is kind of anecdotal, but it does seem like it's a pattern. And that's disturbing. And I don't know if it happens because the process of, of laying off church standards in the process of the New Testament lifestyle becomes de-emphasized. I don't know if that's what happens. I don't know if, if um, brotherly admonition and teaching are, are somehow not filling the void, but something's going on. And when a church stops following the less weighty teachings of the New Testament, the more serious doctrines seem to follow or come under question as well. A friend of mine who, who is a pastor that I consider to be pretty well-read and knows his history, told me that history, he said this to me recently, history hasn't been too kind to Mennonite churches that have gotten rid of standards entirely. He went on to say some things that, that uh, some things have worked um, in maintaining a Christian identity across generations, and some things haven't, and we should learn from, from that history. Someone else pointed out to me recently that based on what has largely happened to the Western church here in America over the last century, do we want to pattern ourselves after them? Do we want to pattern ourselves after them? I remember David Rousseau commenting on how, you know, when he was young, the, the Baptists and the Nazarites, and I think he mentioned one other group, you know, they were really conservative to him. You know, they wore dresses. And uh, he said, things have, have really changed with them over time. And speaking of history, you know, this last Sunday afternoon, and, and I promise I did not prep him, I did not mention the word standard to Ken Rank at all, but he was talking about Mennonite churches in, in Civil War and, and their history, and he told us that Mennonite churches that lost their nonconformity also lost their non-resistance. So there, there's, I'm just emphasizing that when you lose the less weighty teaching of the New Testament, the more weighty stuff seems to follow. Uh, he went on to say this, one of the sad things, I'm quoting him, I think, pretty much word for word, one of the sad things I've noticed, particularly of the brethren people I work with, they are very proud of their heritage, but they're also very proud of the fact that in their church you make whatever decision you want to, and I don't think you can have it both ways. 
The brotherhood has to agree together to stand on the principles of the scripture. If everyone goes off and does their own thing and everyone blesses everybody else, you end up with kind of a middle ground of nothing. Uh, I spent a year with Ken Rankin um, up Bria, so I, I, I know him somewhat, and I wouldn't have thought of him as being a real conservative hardliner, but um, it was interesting for me to hear his perspective on this. Uh, churches that get rid of standards, they do not have to turn out this way, but I would say it's a, it's a disturbing pattern. And we could theorize again about why it happens, but I think we should just recognize that it is a pattern, and I personally don't think the answer is as simple as just, well, they were, you know, they got rid of standards for the wrong reasons, maybe so, or they were just too immature, maybe so. I, I think the answer is, is maybe more nuanced. So just to recap my little monologue here, that uh, I think history shows that churches that maintain some standards tend to do a better job at staying separate from the world. There's strength in having a common stance and making some concrete decisions when it comes to staying separate. Now, a biblical basis for standards. Well, guess what? There's nowhere in the Bible that tells you that a church must have standards. There's also nowhere in the Bible that tells you a church needs to have a Christian day school. But there's a strong basis in the Bible for what we're trying to accomplish with a school out back here. And I would say there is a strong basis in the Bible for what we're trying to accomplish with church standards in separation from the world, in, in biblical unity, and in looking out for each other. And I believe standards are a practical way to help us in these areas. And if I'm right, then I think that's, that is a sufficiently strong biblical basis for standards. Acts 15 is a more direct basis. What happened in Acts 15? Paul and Barnabas, first missionary journey, came back. Lots of Gentiles were being converted. We're becoming Christians. Some Jews said, hey, these Gentiles, they need to be circumcised and they need to follow the law. That was in verse 5. Gentiles, not too excited about that. Paul and Barnabas didn't think it was necessary either. They went back to Jerusalem and met with the apostles and elders there to discuss this issue. This is called the Jerusalem Council. It took place in A.D. 50. The outcome... I'm skipping a lot of, you know, we could read the whole chapter, but I, I really don't have time. The outcome was this message that gets sent to the, to the Gentiles. I'm really struggling with this clicker. Um, here's the outcome. Acts 15, 28, 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on to you no greater burden than these requirements that you, than these requirements that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, from these, you will do well. Farewell. So just a few observations I'd like to make about that outcome. 
Uh, it was a Spirit-directed decision. The Holy Spirit was involved in this decision that they reached. And the decision was that they don't have to follow the law or be circumcised. Good so far. They do have four rules that they need to follow. And you'll notice three of those rules are not really moral items. They're more like menu items. Over in um, Mark 7, verse 19, Jesus declared all food to be clear, uh, clean. I had to remind myself of that the other day when I was at Applebee's. Colleen wouldn't eat all of her steak because it was too pink. And I had persuaded her to go with a medium rare steak and it worked out well for me. Jesus declared all food to be clean. But in their culture, these items were a big deal. Um, they could be a stumbling block to the Jews. And James specifically refers to the law of Moses having been taught widely and this being a re reason for, for coming up with these, with these rules. So they laid down some requirements and they were carried to the Gentile churches on Paul's second missionary journey, carried them back to the Gentile churches they had founded on the first missionary journey. That was Paul and Silas because Paul and Barnabas had split up. Now Acts is a narrative. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It's a list of the, uh, an account of the events in the early church. So just because something is recorded in Acts doesn't mean that we definitely have to do the same thing. For example, um, well, let me just say this. The, the early church, things that they did do in the early church, I believe can be a basis for us or a pattern for us to follow. For example, the apostles, when they were replacing uh, Judas, they used the lot. Does that mean we always have to use the lot? Well, we don't have to always use the lot. We can use it, though. It's a valid option, and God respected it. So I believe Acts 15 is a basis for church standards in that it's an example of a, of a biblical principle, loving your neighbor, being put into specific terms at the corporate level. John Koblen said that the very nature of the meat offered idols regulation being related specifically to that culture and not to ours helps us to realize that every culture will have its meat that the spirit-directed church will forbid. So it was a spirit-led decision to set some rules to the Gentiles. And one, you know, one common objection, well, I don't know if it's common, but one objection to standards is that, you know, well, shouldn't the Holy Spirit be enough to protect us in this area. And certainly the Holy Spirit is where all the strength comes from to resist evil. But sometimes following the lead of the Holy Spirit and being led by the Spirit re results in us drawing restrictions for ourselves. And in this particular case, a restriction was drawn at the brotherhood level. This was not a circle of immature Christians making a poor decision that later resulted in a forehead slap. Um, you know, the, the Apostle Paul here had, already, had probably already written the book of Galatians, where he speaks very firmly about the importance of by grace you're saved and so on, not the works of the law. And it's not like sometimes we read the book of Acts, we think, oh, you know, this is all kind of runs together and we kind of imagine that it's been two weeks since the day of Pentecost. It wasn't. It was 20 years. The church is 20 years old at this point. So under the influence of the Holy Spirit, 
the New Testament church leaders made a pretty sweeping decision there in an area not forbidden by Scripture specifically, and the decision was endorsed by Paul in that he carried it back to the Gentile churches and carried it again on the the, uh, second missionary journey. And by the way, the Gentiles received the news with, with joy. Remember, the alternative was being circumcised and following the law. So just to recap here, a standard, it's an effort to apply Scripture at the brotherhood level. They've been used off and on throughout church history. The Didache, church manual written late in the first century, has a few rules in it that look like standards. More importantly, Acts 15 account that we just looked at resulted in something similar to church standards. Standards have limitations. We, we should not get obsessed with them. There is definitely the ditch of overregulation. Um, standards also have benefits in the areas of looking out for each other, in biblical unity, providing some structure there, and in staying separate from the world. And we're all a family with a mixture of strengths and weaknesses. We affect each other, and we need to stand together. I just want to, here's a closing thought. Um, I'll read this verse here from Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that pretty much sums up what I would like to be the reputation of our church. That, That Bethel would be a group of believers that are standing firm, that is united in spirit and in mind, and striving together side by side to advance the gospel. That's the vision I have for our church, and I'm sure it's all of our vision. Okay, let's have some discussion time. I'm pretty terrible at thinking on my feet, so I reserve the right to say that I will have to think about that. And... um, Maybe some of the questions that come up we can discuss more in depth later when um, at, a, at a men's meeting or something. And um, I'm not a person with many answers. but um, So I would like this to be, if possible, if, if we have a discussion here, that it could be a bit of a, a group discussion and not just me trying to answer every tough question that gets thrown my way, but that we could um, all have a little input. What are, what are some things on your mind? What are some comments that you would have to share back to me this evening? <clears throat>